Hello, welcome back to our 2017 educational webinar series. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, a hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are wrapping up our January theme of access with the topic of MTALA. We are so pleased to have Isla Rothschild discussing the legal, regulatory, and ethical issues related to MTALA. Ms. Rothschild is an accomplished healthcare attorney with a diverse experience, serving both as in-house and private practice counsel to physicians, hospitals, healthcare, and accreditation associations. Her areas of expertise include drafting and negotiating of healthcare and commercial contracts, HIPAA high-tech, MTALA compliance, monitoring Stark fraud and abuse regulations, credentialing of physicians and allied healthcare professionals, med medical staff and peer review, as well as risk management, disruptive behavior, and conflict management. Ms. Rothschild is certified in mediation, arbitration, and healthcare risk management. She earned her BA in Psychology from the University of Wisconsin, a Master of Arts from the School of Social Service Administration at the University of Chicago, and Juris Doctor from the Chicago Kent College of Law. Ms. Rothschild is a noted speaker at state and national healthcare meetings, a co-author of multiple articles on topics such as mediation and conflict management, as well as participating as special counsel to the Joint Commission in several educational videos by emerging healthcare communities addressing topics such as addressing disruptive behavior and unprofessional conduct. A copy of the handout is available for download in the handout section on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel. We will address questions at the end of the presentation. PACOM CU certificates will be emailed to you directly from PACOM within a few days following the live broadcast. There is no need to request your certificate. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Isla, go ahead. Hi, thank you so much, Jill. It's a delight to be here with you today. Um, let's get started. On the very first page, you will see my email. If you have any questions after, after the session, you can certainly email me. So let's start originally with EMTALA. It was enacted by Congress and signed into law by President Reagan in 1986. I show where the regs can be found at 42 USC, the EMTALA regs um, at 42 CFR section 4889. And then I refer all of you to the CMS State Operations Manual. It has all the information you need with respect to EMTALA, um, surveys, the kinds of information you need, and also more recent issues relating to EMTALA. And guys, this is all available on the internet, so I highly recommend that you use the internet. You will find this information. Again, if you have any questions, you can always email me and I can get you to the proper place. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the origins of EMTALA, provisions, and throughout my talk, some risk management takeaways. Violation of EMTALA, it can be pretty extreme. Uh, the surveys are complaint-driven, excuse me for writing, just complaint-driven complaint by state agencies acting on behalf of CMS. Um, Noncompliance is often not the result of a lack of policies and procedures or not having appropriate ER on-call schedules and staffing unfamiliar with EMTALA policies and procedures. That's why all this information not only must be in writing, but it must also, your staff must be very familiar with it. And the violations can be severe. The penalties can include termination of the hospital or the physician's Medicare provider agreement, and hospital fines can be up to, believe this, $50,000 per violation, $25,000 for your hospitals with fewer than 100 beds, and your, even your physician fines can be $50,000 per violation which would also include the on-call physician, so pretty, pretty hefty stuff. Origins of Eptala, I think in the 70s and certainly prior to that, a lot of patients in what I would call an emergency situation, whether they had gunshot wounds or women in active labor, were being rerouted 
from your community hospitals, and what the term that was originally used was dumped at academic centers and county and public hospitals. And oftentimes, the problems were that these patients were unable to pay for their medical care. As a result of these actions, EMTALA was enacted and referred to as the federal anti-dumping law. It ensures access to emergency room services regardless of one's ability to pay, diagnosis, race, color, national origin, or disability. But individuals must have an emergency medical condition, and we'll talk about that. The emergency room visit. If a patient comes to an emergency room department, the hospital or the critical access hospital with an emergency room must provide and perform a medical screening examination, an MSC, to determine if an emergency medical exam or condition exists. <coughs> Excuse me. The definition has expanded over the years. So if we define an emergency department, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services defines an emergency department as a specially equipped and staffed area of your hospital. It's used a significant portion of the time for initial evaluation and treatments of outpatients for emergency medical conditions. Um, there may be occasions when a patient is brought to another part of the hospital that is not considered an emergency room. The patient should be screened there and, if necessary, moved to the emergency room for further screening and stabilization. Now, how do we define the hospital property? The Medicare Interpretive Guide Guidelines determine a hospital property, and that's as opposed to your dedicated emergency department, as a parking lot, a sidewalk, driveway, or hospital departments, including any buildings owned by the hospital that are within 250 yards of the hospital. The 250-yard rule is found in regulations that discuss campus, which means that the physical area immediately adjacent to the hospital's main building and other areas and structures that are not strictly contiguous to the main building but are located within 250 yards of the building. And the 250-yard reference arose here actually in Chicago in 1998. A young boy had been shot and his friends took him to the alley of Ravenswood Hospital grounds here in Chicago. The hospital staff did not leave the hospital to help the young boy and he died of his wounds. And even though the 250-yard rule did not at that time, the OIG imposed a $40,000 fine on the hospital. So again, the fines are serious, but hopefully these regs help a little bit in terms of defining those 250 yards. There's an interesting case that I wanted to bring up, Friedrich versus South County Hospital. It's a Rhode Island case from last year. And the decision was, was, the question was whether an urgent walk-in facility, and I'm sure all your states have them, was required to perform an appropriate screening and stabilization on the plaintiff's decedent pursuant to EMTALA guidelines. The facility claimed that it was not a dedicated emergency department. The CMA, CMS definitions define the dedicated emergency department as meeting one of these three requirements. So one, a facility has to be licensed by the state as an emergency room or department. Or two, the facility is, is held out to the public, and that is by way of its name, its posted signs or advertising, as a place that provides care for emergency medical conditions on an urgent basis, not requiring an appointment. And the third option is that during the previous year, based on a sample of at least one-third of all patient outpatient visits, um, the treatments at the outpatient emergency medical, at the, at the center, that medical conditions were seen without an appointment. And in this case, the facility said that its website claimed that it did not offer emergency care. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have websites. It'd be very, it would be very wise for you to look at your website. If you talk about emergency care, but yet your signs outside, um, it, it can be a problem if your signs outside may say emergency care. 
The court found that the clinic met the second requirement, that it held itself out as a place that provides care for emergency medical conditions on an urgent basis without requiring an appointment. Hold on a second. Though the clinic's web website was clear in that it did not provide emergency care, anyone who drove by this particular urgent center would not be able to make out a distinction between a center offering or not offering the emergency care. So the risk management takeaway is that hospitals and clinics are advised to be very careful and place appropriate signage outside and wording, wording on your signs to let people know that what the clinics provide. And that may be something that you want to go back to and see what, what your website state, but more importantly, what your signage states. Now a medical, screen, a medical screening exam. Once a patient comes to an emergency room, what sort of medical screening exam is required? Well, as you probably know, a medical screening exam is an ongoing process. It starts with a triage that is given to all patients presenting with the same signs and symptoms. It is non-discriminatory. Non so your patients are triaged to determine whether they have an emergency medical um, condition. Is it a stroke? Is it a heart attack? And for pregnant women, are they in active labor? Now the Medical Screening Act must be, a, examination must be appropriate to the patient's presenting symptoms. And the MSC can range anywhere from a brief history and physical to using ancillary equipment, such as x-rays, CAT scans, blood work, whatever is needed to determine what is going on with this particular patient. And then the patient must either be stabilized according to the MTALA guidelines or transferred to another facility. But with respect to MTALA and patient registration, the hospital can request health insurance information, but it cannot delay the implementation of the medical screening exam or stabilization or transfer of the patient. And I want to give you an example. This actually happened to me a couple years ago. I fell, it was late at night, and I broke, I severely broke my left, left wrist. Somehow I was able to drive to a nearby hospital um, and it was kind of funny. I was in a lot of pain, but as I walked in, they were all watching Dancing with the Stars. Needless to say, I wasn't too happy about that, but I told them that I had broken my wrist. They immediately took me into a room. They started examining it, and they tried to stabilize the wrist, which was actually a very painful procedure. But while they were literally doing this procedure, one of the clerks um, walked in and wanted to get my patient registration. And I will tell you, that the attending physician who was attending to me got a bit angry with this clerk and said, please, please get out. We're performing a procedure at this time. I mean, obviously later when I was stabilized, they received the appropriate information, but it was kind of a bit of a stressful time when all of this was happening to me, the patient, and then someone came in and wanted to to see my registration. Needless to say, um, within two days, my, actually I had to have surgery and my wrist is fine. Um, the capacity and capability of the hospital, this is also an important issue. The medical screening exam must be provider based upon the capability and capacity of the hospital. In other words, the hospital must have the appropriate staff and equipment equipment capable of treating a particular emergent situation. So if the hospital does not have the capacity or capability to treat a patient in an emergent situation, the hospital must either must stabilize the patient and or transfer the patient to a facility that has the appropriate staff and equipment. And EMTALA defines stabilized to mean that there has been no material deterioration of the condition and uh, within reasonable medical probability to result from or occur during the transfer of the individual from a facility or that the patient, the woman, has delivered, including the placenta. If an emergency medical exam has taken place and it is determined that the patient has an emergency medical condition and the hospital does not have the appropriate, appropriate capability or capacity 
the hospital must stabilize the patient within the best within its best capability or capacity. The hospital must transfer the patient if the patient or a legally responsible individual acting on the patient's behalf requests a transfer after being informed of the hospital's obligations and of the risks of the transfer. The request must be in writing and indicate the reasons for the request and that the patient or legally responsible individual is aware of the risks and benefits of the transfer. Now this can kind of be difficult when a patient's physician is on the staff of one hospital, but yet the patient is taken to the closer hospital. The closer hospital may not have the patient's medical information or even the name or, or the name of the patient's physician. What was helpful in my case is I went to a hospital that knew me, had my medical records, my physician was on staff there and actually recommended that I go to a particular orthopedist. So I think you really need to look not only on behalf of your patients but yourself if you are if you live closer to a hospital, but if your patient is if your physician is on staff at another hospital, and if you are in emergency in an emergency situation, there can, can be problems in getting information. So I think between what you had at your your physician's office versus the hospital you were going to now. So I think this is something that you need to look to not only when patients come into the hospital but also for yourselves. The transfer to another hospital is appropriate when the receiving hospital, after being called by a sending hospital, has available space and qualified personnel capable to treat the patient and the receiving hospital has agreed to the transfer. Now there's a lot of work that the transferring hospital must send with the patient. It must include all the medical records related to the emergency condition. So that, that includes your observations, signs and symptoms, preliminary diagnosis, results of any diagnostic tests, treatment provided, results of any tests, and the signature of the patient if the patient is requesting the transfer. In addition, a participating hospital that has specialized capabilities and facilities such as your burn units, your NICUs, a psychiatric hospital may not refuse to accept a patient from a referring hospital um, if it's an appropriate transfer and if this individual requires specialized capabilities or facilities and if the receiving hospital has the capacity to treat the individual. This requirement applies to any participating hospital with specialized capabilities, regardless of whether that hospital has a dedicated emergency department. For example, if a patient has a psychiatric emergency and the patient is transferred to a psychiatric hospital, the fact that the psychiatric hospital does not have a dedicated emergency department is of, of no import. If the psychiatric hospital has the capacity and capability and refuses the patient, the hospital can be found in violation of EMTALA. Now psychiatric patients are considered to have an emergency medical condition if they are considered to, um, if they're expressing suicidal or homicidal thoughts. Stabilizing these psychiatric patients means that they are prevented from injuring or harming themselves or others. So, so this could also mean that during the transfer of a psychiatric patient, you may need to use chemical or physical restraints, and which may be required. And also, also hospitals should have policies and procedures regarding psychiatric patients who are in the custody of, um, of police. Hospitals may all, must also have hospital logs, and this is absolutely critical. In those logs are the names of patients who have come to the emergency departments and indicate whether these patients refused treatment, were, were denied treatment, or were treated, admitted, stabilized, and or transferred to other hospitals. The logs are critical if a hospital has been cited for an EMTALA violation. 
because one of the first items a surveyor will review will be the hospital's ER laws. In violation of EMTALA, EMTALA is complaint driven. A hospital is required to report to CMS or a state survey agency if it suspects it may have received an improperly transferred patient. And the state must be notified within 72 hours. Failure to report an improper transfer can result in the receiving hospital losing its provider agreement. Again, services cannot be denied on the basis of diagnosis, financial status, race, color, national origin, or handicap. And claimants who are stating that they were denied the diagnosis based on any of those issues, claimants will be forwarded to the state survey agency and it will be shot up, up to the Office of Civil Rights. And you should be aware that violation of EMTALA is not a medical malpractice statute. So I'd like to talk to you about some special issues um, on-call physicians and telemedicine. Um, as, you're well in, as you're well aware, telemedicine is being used in a lot of different areas now. So if we look at hospitals and critical care hospitals, they are required to maintain an on-call list of physicians on its medical staff. These on-call physicians are required to make an in-person in appearance when requested to by the physician, which is usually the ER physician, who is treating the patient. There is no entire prohibition against a treating physician to remotely consult with another physician who may or may, may not be on the on-call list. This is particularly helpful now that hospitals, especially your remote hospitals, are utilizing telemedicine when specialists are needed to consult with the treating hospitals or with the treating physician. CMS services and telemedicine CMS does not require physicians to appear on site when a patient comes to the emergency department. So, and then a physician, a doctor of osteopathy, a PA or a nurse practitioner with experience in emergency care um, can be immediately available via phone and radio or available in person within 30 minutes. An MD or GEL must be available via phone or radio 24 hours a day to receive emergency calls. And this requirement can be met by tele telemedicine physicians or GEL. Now, with respect to um, CAHs in telemedicine, the critical, the CAH is not required to include telemedicine physicians on its MD on-call roster. The CAH is required under MTALA to have an on-call list reasonably related to the services it offers. It offers must be composed of physicians who can practice on site at the CAH. This does not mean that the physicians who practice on site must be on call and available to appear in person at all times. Nor does it mean that an on-call MD must be called to appear on site or in every case involving an emergency medical condition. It should also be noted that hospitals may have um, a practice that allows senior medical staff, those who have work 20 years or are over 60 years of age to be exempt from on-call responsibility. Hospitals merely need to maintain an on-call list of physicians in a manner that best, needs, best meets the needs of the hospitals and its patients. Now there are some special situations that a lot of hospitals have to deal with and one certainly are your disasters. Now, in 2009, we were inundated with the H1N1 influenza, and there was concern expressed by hospitals that they might not be able to provide adequate care when the emergency rooms were overwhelmed. In comments um, later stated by CMS, they stated that the medical screening exam did not need to be an extensive workup in every single case. 
and that the medical screening examination could take place outside the ED or at other sites on the hospital campus. And then use of the medical transports, emergency medical transports. There may be instances where hospitals have refused to accept the transfer of a patient in emergency medical, an emergency medical condition because they said the descending hospital would not use either their air medical service or an ambulance that was owned by the receiving hospital. It's been very, it's been made very clear by by the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services that it is an EMTALA violation for a receiving hospital to condition its acceptance of a patient in an emergency medical condition upon the sending, uh, or sending hospital's use of a particular emergency transport uh, instead of an emergency transport arranged by the sending hospital. So there is no need and no requirement that you use the receiving hospital's equipment. And CMS also made some comments regarding false labor. Originally, only, only physicians could certify if a pregnant woman was experiencing contractions or whether she was in false labor. Prior re regulations required that if a qualified medical practitioner other than a physician, that is an RN or a PA, determined that a, that a woman was in false labor, a physician had to certify the diagnosis. The rules were changed in 2006 to expand those professionals who could certify false labor. The professionals must be acting not only within the scope of their practices defined by your hospital bylaws, but also by your state laws. So I think you'll want to look at your state laws and see who are considered qualified medical practitioners. And then you need to look at your hospital bylaws and you may want to change your bylaws so that other qualified medical practitioners can make these determinations. Um, and finally, it's important to review your policies and procedures. Um, you need to bring in a variety of staff who participate in treating patients who have emergency medical treatment. And at some point, it's also reasonable um, with staff of other hospitals, for, for you to meet with staff of other hospitals in your catchment area to determine what their capabilities are and how you can coordinate care when a disaster strikes. And finally, you need to consider a time when you and other facilities in your, act, in your area can act out an emergency scenario, and I'll be talking about that a little later. Hospitals are doing this throughout the United States so that plans can go into practice as soon as disasters hit. We've seen too many disasters with respect to hurricanes um, and tornadoes. We've seen hospitals that were severely hit. Um, so we need to know um, what's available for communities when these disasters strike. So what I thought I'd do now is take some questions um, from the field. Um, do you have any for me, Jill? I do, I do. Uh, and we will see about uh, anyone else at this moment wants to type in any questions, any more questions. Uh, First, we have, um, you mentioned telemedicine. How can mobile devices help the flow of traffic in the emergency room? This is sort of interesting. I've always been interested in telemedicine. I know the Joint Commission was very interested in telemedicine, and I think it's always helpful for you to go to the Joint Commission and ask any questions of them, certainly if you are, um, you are accredited by them. I've been reading a couple of articles lately. A number of hospitals are beginning to use, um, they have their own apps. They also have um, various cell phones that they use and mobile devices that assist them in knowing what is the coverage in the emergency room, um, especially if there is um, a crisis what kinds of devices do you have and how can you utilize them and how does it assist 
will blow a traffic in your emergency room. Some facilities have used these mobile devices and actually determined that um, it didn't really assist um, in the flow of traffic. So I think what you need to do, what you need to do, because it is so early on, is that clearly there is a need for use for mobile devices especially in respect, with respect to disasters. When you've got people who may be triaged all over a particular hospital and need to contact one another, it would be helpful to have those mobile devices that have specific numbers related to them so that if you need to contact individuals in one part of the hospital, you can notify them, determine what their coverage is and what their needs are. So I suggest you pretty much step outside of the box. Again, you can do um, a search on the internet or also talk to hospitals, in, again, in your catchment area or even talk with state um, facilities. Also talk to a lot of your, um, your state organizations. I worked for the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, but I often gave talks. At, at the state societies and the state levels in various states. So you might, might want to not only look at your state nursing association, but the medical association, and ask them, and I know that, I know that everybody is very interested in telemedicine, especially in your rural areas um, where physicians or specialists are not so available. So again, think outside of the box and start talking to your peers. If you have state meetings, it would be appropriate to bring in um, personnel who know more about telemedicine and have used it so that everyone can get a good idea in terms of how telemedicine can be used um, in emergency rooms. Next. Okay, uh, another question. Uh, there's more and more violence in the hospitals, uh, especially the ER. What can we do to protect our staff? Unfortunately, we've been hearing a lot about violence for a long time. Um, it's a big issue. It's certainly not going away. Uh, the Joint Commission um, publishes Sentinel events, Sentinel event alerts, and they're available on the internet. Um, there was one published in June on June 3rd of 2010. Actually, it was issue 45. And it discussed high-risk areas of a hospital where there's high stress and certainly the emergency is one of them. And it, it recommended that obviously there, we need to have controls throughout the hospital institution. Are you securing, are you securing the perimeter of the, of the property with appropriate lighting barriers, fences if necessary? Are you controlling access through your entrances, um, your exits, and your stairwells? Certainly in your parking lots, make sure that they're extremely well lit. Um, you can look to the Joint Commission and also OSHA and your various professional societies, again, like your nurses, American Nurses Association. But the, the um, Sentinel event, uh, the alert, talks about causes of violence, as if we don't already know. There's stress in ER, ERs. There are fewer mental health beds. There's an increase in patient acuity and increase of use of hospitals by your law enforcement. So what you need to do, I think all institutions need to do this if they haven't already, you need to conduct a, a pretty comprehensive evaluation. Um, and you need to bring in a competent credential hospital security professional who should lead these meetings um, and make sure that these are multidisciplinary teams. So you bring in, if it's multidisciplinary, you want to bring in all your important staff from your emergency rooms, even your cardiac care units, your labor rooms, bring in, um, your, always bring in your um, risk managers and directors of those various units, the nursing staff, and also bring in the clerks because the clerks are the ones who meet these indi individuals first time. So 
they're the ones who meet the patients and, and the nurses and can pretty much evaluate if there are particular concerns. And then you also need to plan for an active shooter. And unfortunately, we've seen too many of those. So you need to, one, have a team that responds for active shooters as well. Um, you need to have communication during the active shooter situation. You need to have a really good alert system. What amazes me is when we hear, unfortunately, that there have been shootings at hospitals and also at your colleges. You have immediate um, notices um, going to everyone's emails and telling them where the shooting, where the active shooting is, whether a particular area has shut down, and also telling people to stay where they are. So I think these are some of the things that you need to look at. You need to perhaps identify safe rooms in your institution where your staff are located and what's a state safe area for them. And you need to train the, per the personnel and you need to actually have drills where you have a mock setting of a, um, an active shooter scenario so that your staff know firsthand what to do when that sort of situation occurs. Any other questions? Uh, yes. Um, are there any re regulations that may impact MTALA in the area of disaster preparedness? Okay, so this is sort of interesting. I'm always on a lot of listservs, and last week um, I got a particular listserv, the CMS Emergency Preparedness Rule, and that's the name of it. The CMS Emergency Preparedness Rule um, was published in September 16th of 2016. It must be implemented by November 15th of this particular year. And what you need to do is go on the internet and literally type in CMS emergency preparedness rule. You'll get a lot of information that CMS has already put out. But it applies to 17 provider and supplier groups. So it certainly applies to your hospitals your critical access hospitals, and let's say you're in your long-term care facilities. Each, each of these groups must develop an emergency plan based on its own capacity and capabilities. Um, must have policies and procedures, and they need to be reviewed and updated on an annual basis. For hospitals, your critical access hospitals, and your long-term care facilities, you must have policies that address the provision of sustenance of food, excuse me, of water, um, medical, medical supplies for your staff and residents. Because you may not be able to evacuate your hospitals. It may be too extreme outside. You may have severely ill patients who cannot be moved. So you have to determine um, if you're going to shelter these patients, how you're going to do so, and always have these implements in mind. Um, again, you need to have a very sophisticated communication plan. This plan must comply with your federal, state, and local laws. And so that patient care can be coordinated not only among the various players in your particular institution, but with your local state and federal agencies. You need to develop training and testing. Um, initial training, facility staff must be able to demonstrate knowledge um, of emergency procedures and again train on an annual basis. And the facility must be able to conduct um, exercises to, to test the emergency plan. Again, it's really important. And I think you've already seen it. I know we've seen it a number of times in Chicago and other cities where they literally have mock emergencies. They even tell the particular um, the city or, or the county or wherever these mock disasters are taking place to let people know that these are only, these are not for real instances, but it's just the testing of what 
what facilities and capabilities are. And then what's neat about when you have these mock disaster drills, and even when it's in your particular hospital, you then all meet together and determine what went right, what went wrong, how can we make changes. And it's important, I think, to hold these mock disaster drills or crisis drills or active shooter drills because, it, God forbid, when these things really happen, your staff feel much more comfortable in getting into that crisis mode. So with respect to the CMS, you can go to the CMS. There is a medical learning network, and it had an emergency preparedness national call. I think it occurred last year. But they have a website that has slides, audios, and even has a transcript of what occurred. So again, it would be the CMS Medical Learning Network Emergency Preparedness National Call. So I highly recommend when that you go to, to these particular websites and get some critical information and start building up um, your disaster plan if you don't already have one. Any other questions? Uh, there is one more question. Uh, we're concerned about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, could this impact patients seeking medical care? Our emergency rooms are already crowded, and patients uh, who won't have their own internists may start coming to the emergency room, making it even more difficult to see critical patients. This is a tough one. Um, I wish I had an answer for you. I think it's too early to tell what the impact will be, um, whether it will be a full um, repeal of the act and what will be replaced. Um, my concern, though, is certainly if patients lose insurance or parts of their insurance um, or if they're not able to buy insurance because of high premiums and high deductibles, the patients will resort um, to going to emergency rooms. I think, you know, that Obamacare wasn't perfect, but we did see a lot of patients who started to go to internists to find physicians who could help them when they had chronic illnesses. Um, certainly one of them being diabetes or if you've had chronic heart disease. And the other important thing, and that's why patients should, no matter what happens, make sure that you have insurance so that you can go in even for your annual exams. I think this is so important to get just a basic physical exam to know whether perhaps you have high blood pressure, um, whether you have a beginning stages of diabetes or whatever, but that you're being treated on the early end of a particular illness, waiting until or, or taking the chance that you're, you're not going to get insurance in that you're just going to go to an emergency room in a critical situation. It's not good for you, certainly not good for the patients who may be very ill. It's going to put tremendous stress on a hospital. And I also want to just mention that, you know, a lot of hospitals are beginning to buy up medical practices. Um, I was in a particular practice that had four physicians Three of them wanted to go into a concierge practice. So you're seeing physicians who don't want to deal with all, I think, all of the issues pertaining to Medicaid and Medicare want to close their practices down. In a concierge practice, you're paying a couple thousand dollars a year to be, you're, you're still having to pay insurance to your physician, but he's available to see you or she's available to see you at whatever time, whatever whatever time, whatever problem, you can reach them at any time. But there are unfortunately very few patients who I think can afford a concierge practice. And then you're also seeing physicians in your practices who are being bought up by your hospitals. So these are physicians who never had to deal with patients who were in an emergency situation, that is, in an emergency room situation. So when you see all these new physicians coming on board, it's critical for you to meet with them um, and for them to understand 
what the call situation is all about, what the requirements are, and that they have to be specifically trained in MTAWA because these practitioners, unless they were residents in Delta emergency room in a hospital, some of these physicians may not be familiar with MTAWA and may try to transfer a patient or not treat a patient or whatever um, in violation of MTAWA. So it can put a patient at risk, a physician at risk, and the institution at risk. So I think we all need to stay as up-to-date as we can on um, Obamacare, um, the Affordable Care Act. Um, if you have questions, I think it's important for you as an institution to maybe look to your risk management, also your legal counsel. Um, you may even want to hold a couple of um, meetings for all your medical staff or even community meetings. A lot of communities are now bringing everyone together and, and having conferences or evening meetings with coffee and donuts and kind of discussing the state of medical affairs not only in your hospital but in your community. So I wish us all well, but I, I think you need to urge everyone to get some form of insurance um, if they can't afford it. And hopefully that insurance will be available for for everyone. Those are my wishes. I want to I want to say one more thing, Jill, if you don't mind. Um, so much has been happening with um, President Trump. Um, he recently, as of the last few days, um, put into place a travel ban um, encompassing seven Muslim countries. Um, and that's having a tremendous, tremendous impact on our hospitals. And I hadn't even thought of this, the international medical staff that we have in our hospitals, um, your physicians, your nursing staff who work in your hospitals and your clinics, especially um, in your long-term care facilities. You have individuals taking care of you from all over the world. If a physician or a nurse or any individual is out of the country and planning to return to the United States and is from one of those seven countries, um, there can be problems and there can be disruptions in terms of returning to the United States, even though we've had a number of various current court rulings and attorneys who are trying to assist these individuals returning to the United States. Um, and I was also reading an article that talked about the stress that this ban can cause on Match Day, which is coming up, the third uh, Friday, I think, in March where medical students determine where they want to seek a residency here in the United States. So it can impact those individuals who are being matched. And we're certainly seeing foreign staff in our ERs, all over our institutions, So, and, and how stressed they must be, not only with respect to they're being here in the United States, even if they do have a green card. But if they are traveling, or if, or if perchance they're out of the United States and trying to get back at this time. So I was trying to figure out sort of a takeaway that I would give to you and your facilities. And you may have already done this, but I think since this is so new, you may want to take this to heart and talk to individuals within your, your facilities. So these are my thoughts. Your facilities have to take a proactive stance. You can't let this stuff happen, happen to your nurses and your doctors. You need to make a statement. You need to let your staff know that you are there for them and that you will assist them in any way you can. So I would recommend that the CEO of your facility meet with all the staff involved not only those who may have green cards, but I think everyone in the institution. And tell them that he is standing behind them and that the institution will help any of the practitioners if they need assistance. I think you also need to, to enact or add, uh, have an ad hoc meeting that includes HR, 
which may have a list of individuals who are or employees who are impacted, your legal staff, nursing, medicine, risk management, your compliance, um, and determine what the next steps are and what your approach will be and sort of write up something that you would like to see. Um, your CEO will then take this. I think this is a critical issue that your hospital boards need to look at. They need to make a present, and then they need to make a presentment to the hospital, the hospital employees, and what steps will be taken to assist employees who are traveling. So, and then ultimately, I think you need to get your PR people, and you might even want to get a statement that appears in various local papers and let individuals know in your communities that your hospitals are well aware of the situation and they're available to help staff who work within these institutions. So, you know, we start out with a talk on EMTALA, but we see how violence, how disasters, how even a travel ban by our president can impact emergency rooms. So I, ho I hope, if anything, I've tried to explain to you what MTAL is all about, what some of the more pressing issues or crises are, um, where you can go to receive additional information, and then just some of the current issues I think that are important. Um, have I missed anything, Jill? No, I think you covered it, and I appreciate your comments. Um, thank you so much. Please use Isla's contact information on the screen for any additional questions. Uh, if you send us questions, we will forward them on to her. Your PACOM CU certificate, which will also have the index number, will be emailed directly to you from PACOM. Please join us again next week on February 8th at noon Eastern Standard Time for the first of our February webinars, focusing on equipment and services. This will be Jill Longo of Bittinger Law and addressing issues related to physician distribution of durable medical equipment. This webinar is both CEU and CME accredited. You can register for this webinar and also request a demo of our compliance solution at our website at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you very much and have a great day.